0: Uh, I want you to open with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and if you are a guest with us this morning, we're glad you're here. If you didn't come with a Bible, we would love for you to take one of the ones on our back table. Uh, You can keep it if you would like. Let that be our gift to you. Um, If you've been around, and if it's not obvious, uh, let me just say at Maricopa Springs, we generally like to teach our way through the Bible instead of jumping around by topic. There are different ways to kind of approach the study of scripture, but here we go slowly through the text. And we would do this for three reasons. Let me just fill you in on this while you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First of all, we do it because I think it helps us understand all of us together that the Bible is our source for wisdom. If you want to be wise and you want to build your life on a true and firm foundation, then you need the Bible, okay? Every time I'm up here teaching, I hope that subconsciously I'm reinforcing that because you have a Bible in front of you and you're looking at it and we're working our way slowly through it and hopefully that just infuses you with this reality that you need to live on the Word of God. Uh, So we teach slowly through it when we gather together as a church. That's one reason why. The second, we generally teach our way slowly through the Bible so that you can be insulated and protected from me. Because the fact of the matter, I have certain parts of the Bible that I really like, and uh, if I only bounced around based on topics, you probably would never hear me teach on the parts of the Bible that I don't like as much as the other parts. I like all of it, but, you know, I, I would just sort of spend all my time in my favorite places, okay? Uh, and so from time to time, we do look at different topics, but working our way slowly, methodically through a book of the Bible forces us to look at everything that it says. Okay? The third reason we do this is because we sincerely believe at Maricopa Springs that all of the Word of God is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for growth. All of it, every part of it. We don't think that the Bible just has wisdom for good relationships, although it does. We don't think it just has wisdom for financial peace, although it does. We don't think it just encourages us towards moral living, although it does, uh, or just offer us hope in difficult times. It does do all of those things, but um, we think all of it is important. We don't think that just certain parts of it are important. Okay? So we teach our way through books of the Bible because we believe that all of the Bible is helpful for us. So in short, we teach and preach like this as a church because we, we do think it's what is best for us. All right, let me pray for us as we get into this uh, and then we'll take a look at 1 Thessalonians. Lord God, please do edify us through your word. Teach us. Lord, you know that I have spent time and prayer preparing for this but I'm ultimately just desperate upon you for your Holy Spirit to minister to us through your word and so I ask that you would do that this morning that our eyes would be turned to you that our hearts would be open to your Holy Spirit that our lives would be conformed by your word and so father do that work in us this morning we pray amen let me read our text. We're in First Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm just going to read verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were infants among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Uh, First Thessalonians, and this section in particular, and, and, and really all of the second chapter here, is a highly autobiographical book. In chapter 2, Paul's remembering his time with his friends in Thessalonica, and he's just sharing his thoughts as he remembers the experience. And I find it fascinating that the Bible is not merely a list of rules or a series of spiritual or religious principles to live by. The Bible so often weaves the ideas of righteousness and godly living and Love that honors God into the stories and lives of real people. Isn't that cool? Because that's where the gospel belongs, isn't it? Smack dab in the center of our real lives. The gospel's not some kind of treasure that we're supposed to appreciate through glass panes as if we were at a museum looking at old things. The gospel is not a sterile spiritual concept that requires that we handle with gloved fingers and not approach closely. The gospel is not some artifact artifact of archaeology which we analyze from afar. The gospel is primarily about human hearts. And wherever the gospel goes, the gospel weaves itself into real lives and real people. Like an affectionate family, we come together under the gospel, under the care of God our Father. And so the saving grace of Jesus Christ, it's a real and tangible thing that seeps its way into human hearts and reorders the world around it everywhere that it goes and takes root. The gospel is the living and active reality of the kingdom of God, fueled by the spirit of God in the lives of real people. It is a story that is a continually unfolding story about God's love for His people, God's grace as He saves a people for His name. And the reason I say all this is because I I don't know how to teach this passage of Scripture without being somewhat personally autobiographical as well, okay? Paul shares his story with the church of Thessalonica And that compels me this morning to share some of my story with you, okay? I just don't know how to read the love and affection that's really dripping from Paul's words in this section of 1 Thessalonians without my heart really resonating with the emotion that Paul puts into his words. Now, I, I get it. This text is definitely not about me. It's not about our church. But when I read it, I can't help but share in Paul's feelings as he remembers his past experiences with these people ministering to them. He hopes that the sincerity of his past behavior, as he reminds them of it, his lifestyle will allow these people to see just how genuine his heart is in wanting to share this good news, this gospel with them. Okay, And I want you to know that the way in which Paul speaks to the Thessalonians, to their church, is the same way that I feel about you. It's the same way that I feel about our church. Man, I'm sorry. Um, Maricopa Springs. So just a little bit of, of some autobiography here. Um, I don't normally do this, I'm sorry. but. Um, I want to give you a little bit of the history of our church because very few of you in this room were here in those early, early days. Uh, so maybe you've heard bits and pieces of this story. But I, I, I share this with you because I hope it will give you some insight into the sincerity of my heart as your pastor, okay? Um, this, is, this is funny. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm crying. Leanne, I don't think, has ever actually seen me cry. Maybe like twice, okay? So this is not typical. Um She's rubbing off on me. Yes, that's a that's a very good thing. Uh, Leanne and I moved here from Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, in 2009. Leanne's family lives in Phoenix, but when we moved to Maricopa, we didn't know a single soul in town. We knew nobody. We moved here with essentially one ambition, one desire in our hearts, and that was to plant a church. We wanted to start a church in the growing city of Maricopa, and reach lost people and minister to them and share in the joy of doing life with fellow disciples. Leanne was eight months pregnant when we got the keys to our house, and we uh, had left very secure jobs at a megachurch outside of Chicago to move to a place where we didn't know anybody, really to step out into the unknown. We did move out here with one other couple, which was a great grace to us, Mitch and Stacy Royer, who helped us plant the church and then later moved to a different ministry in Texas. We didn't have a sending church. We didn't have a sending uh, organization. In fact, actually at one point, I took a um, sort of like a personality test to see if I was fit to be a church planter, and I failed miserably. <laughs> Um, all we had in this endeavor was about $3,000 in a bank account that we had set aside from our own savings, Mitch and Stacy doing that with us, uh, to pay what we hoped would cover the first month's rent in some facility. And at that point, all of the schools were full, and the only place that we could find was a conference room over at Global Water, the Global Water Building. Our first Sunday was Easter 2010. And somehow, by God's grace, we managed to gather like a dozen people to join us as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And the first few years of church planting are the hardest. I've heard varying statistic statistics, but some estimates are that um, as many of, as half of church plants don't last longer than three years. And in those early days, I definitely wondered almost every Sunday if this would be the last Sunday. If there would be anybody besides just Leanne and I and the Royers at church that morning, or if I would be preaching to a dozen empty seats. And for whatever reason, God gave us a ton of grace. He allowed us to continue to plug on and keep our doors open. We're coming up on nine years now, which I think is just incredible. And because of the labor, thank you. I think that that truly is a testimony of God's kindness. And because, because of this labor that God uh, allowed us to participate in, we've seen lives changed. I hope that you might be one of those lives. The first four years, I worked a second job. I was a, a banker by day to pay the bills and keep food on my table. And I was a pastor by night, if you will. I received almost no income from the church until my fifth year here, so uh, I worked full-time just for the joy of doing it. Leanne and I literally poured everything that we had into Maricopa Springs. Sometimes we chose not to pay our own bills so that we could pay the rent for the facility that we were meeting in. We had wave after wave of people who came to our church who We loved and would knit our hearts together with them only to see them leave town because of the financial crisis or uh, not being able to pay their mortgage because they couldn't afford it any longer or a better opportunity someplace else. And that was painful. Um, In many ways, it was an excruciating journey. We struggled with what often felt like fruitlessness. God, you have placed us here and yet it feels like you're not doing anything. Sometimes we wrestled with loneliness because we were busy and disconnected from one another and friends that we met would often leave and we often felt abandoned. But in the process, God grew our hearts to love this city more and more and to love our church more and more so that the sacrifices and the struggles that we put into this paled in comparison to the joy that God gave us in seeing lives changed and seeing families grow and seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit be manifest in people's lives as we walk this journey with them. And it's been a wild ride. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't. And I tell you this story only because like Paul, I want you to know how much Leanne and I sincerely love you. We sincerely do. And if you've not experienced that personally, directly from Leanne and I, like if we don't have any personal relationship with you in which you've experienced that, I hope you've at least come to understand that through interacting with other people in our church and participating in the life of this body. Leanne and I have literally given our lives to this church We've given our family, we've given our children to this church, we've given our hearts, we've given our very souls to you, to this congregation, to this endeavor of serving the Lord for your benefit. And we've made these decisions because it's a labor of love and we truly do love you. We regret no sacrifice that we have made along the way because we've been deeply blessed We've been blessed to see you grow in your love for Jesus. And we have no greater joy than seeing our friends and our church family increase in a love for Jesus Christ and experience the joy of his grace in greater degrees. Okay? Now, it's definitely not about me. That's not the point. My point is that I hope that in hearing a little bit of this story, how we got here as a church, that you will understand the sincerity of the love which we have for you. And as we look more closely at our text now, we're gonna see that Paul's actions were motivated by that same kind of divine love and desire, okay? If we look at verses five and six, what we see is that Paul makes three denials as he defines his ministry. First, he says that he never came with flattery which he backs up by pointing to the experience of the Thessalonian believers. He says, look, I I never said anything to you that was meant to tickle your ears. Remember, I've been saying in this letter, as we've worked our way up to this point, that Paul is laboring hard to distinguish himself from these traveling philosophers and orators that would make their way around the Roman Empire, bringing new religious ideas or philosophies, and in the process become rich really through their teaching. One of their techniques was to use their oratory and rhetorical skills to butter up the audiences that they could gather, flattery of the worst sort that included deception in some ways and vacuous praise in others, false promises of what benefit would come to these people if they were to follow their teaching and give money to their ministry. And Paul outright denies any such flattery in his ministry. Second, Paul claims that unlike these philosophers who came looking for benefactors to be supported, Paul never sought any personal gain. His heart was not motivated by greed, God as his witness. All of Paul's labor, it was for their benefit, not his own. And then in verse 6 he claims... That glory and fame and honor were never his driving force either. Again, exemplified by Paul's virtuous life in every city where he went to spread the gospel. In other words, in this point he's saying, go around to all the places I've been and people will say, I've never been in it for my good name, my reputation. And this lifestyle which Paul exemplified, it set him apart, I assure you, as he brought the gospel to the Roman Empire. Paul's message of Jesus Christ and his conduct in the Holy Spirit made Paul unique in the Roman Empire as he engaged in this process of preaching and teaching and planting churches. Uh, There was a Greek contemporary of Paul's. His name was Chrysostom. He was a philosopher, a writer, an orator, not a Christian, a pagan. But in his writings, we find this scathing evaluation of the same kinds of people that Paul's trying to distance himself from. Dio Chrysostom writes These philosophers, they deliver orations for their own profit and glory. They are gorgeous peacocks lifted up high on the wings of glory and their disciples. Paul finds it important to not be confused with those individuals. It's clear as he writes this, Paul, that he finds it important to not be seen as one of those kinds of men. Now, you may be sitting there going, okay, well, we don't have traveling philosophers. What does this mean for me? This is kind of uh, unfamiliar to me. We don't live in the Roman Empire, and there aren't people traveling around trying to get their hands in my pockets. Yeah, but I assure you, I assure you, that the motivation of those in ministry is worth placing under The microscope of scrutiny. It is. It's important for us to ask even today do the lives and the conduct and the message of those who claim to represent Jesus actually look like the life of Jesus or the life of Paul? Or can we find beneath the surface Man-centered flattery, hunger for financial gain, and vain desire for human glory. Over the last few years, tragically, several leaders of some of the nation's biggest churches have been caught in terrible scandals. It's tragic and sad. They've proven themselves in these things being exposed that some of them, some of these men in particular, have no reason continuing in ministry because of the current state of their heart. Worse than that, I think that you could almost perfectly paste these empty Greek philosophers right into the prominent TV ministries that fill so many American homes on a Sunday morning, or even throughout the week, for that matter. The prepaid book deals, the stadium seating, the TV and radio shows, the pop star preacher is our modern day empty-souled traveling philosopher driven by flattery and greed and fame and glory not all of them but a good number of them and i don't need to know i don't i don't need to use names because you know who i am speaking about people claiming the name of jesus to buy luxury jets for ministry hawking the power of the holy spirit through prayer cloths and holy water Producing music albums sung the world round that don't have the name of Jesus ever in them. Filling stadiums with people gathered to hear about how they can achieve greater health, wealth, and prosperity. Turning the gospel from a message about man's sin and God's loving kindness into a message about man's glory and God's enslavement to it. And if Paul were writing this letter today, I think those are the peddlers of empty religion that Paul would be laboring hard to distance himself from. And the point is that Paul lived an exemplary life of sacrifice, of love, humility that sought only to direct people to Jesus where their hope could truly be found. He sought no personal profit from his labor of love. His motivation was only to serve God and to serve others. In fact, I think, this is kind of ironic, but I think if Paul were alive today, he would be angry at how often we mention his name in church instead of the name of Jesus. But Paul understood that the greatest rewards are not in the hands of men to be doled out and distributed. The greatest rewards belong to Jesus. And his they are His alone to distribute to those who remain faithful to His name. And I just want to say, I, 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 maybe I confess, maybe I'm not this bold usually, but I, I'm going to be bold and say, if you listen to a preacher who doesn't constantly point you to Jesus, increasing your love and desire for him through what the Bible clearly teaches, just stop listening to them. They're doing you no good. And if someday I fall into that category, stop listening to me sincerely. One final note on verse six before we move on. Paul could have made demands on the churches. Do you see what he says here? He claims his apostleship. He had positional authority over the churches as one who was directly commissioned by Jesus himself to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. He saw the risen Lord face to face in a vision. And later in this letter, Paul is actually going to make demands upon the people in Thessalonica. He is going to essentially exercise his authority to do that. But he's going to make his demands based on two principles, and I want you to see this, his life and his mission. Paul always makes demands upon the followers of Christ. He is bold to do that. He calls them to live lives of holiness and righteousness. He he makes the highest demands that you can make on anyone's life not merely that you would give your money or your home or your time, but that you would give your very soul to Christ Jesus. But he does this by showing the power of the gospel in his own life to prove the validity of his message. Just like he does in verses 5 and 6, Paul calls Christians to greater godliness because the message he has brought is the message of the power of God to transform the human heart from the ugliness of sin to the beauty of Christ Jesus himself. Furthermore, Paul makes demands because his demands are not for Paul and his benefit. They're for the benefit of Christ and his church. And so Paul's mission leads him then to urge Christians to give their hearts and give their lives to the mission that Christ has called them to the establishment of the church, the salvation of the lost, conformity to the image of Christ in those who call themselves Christians. Paul stands to gain nothing personally from these demands that he places on the lives of the people that he ministers to. Instead, he wants Jesus to be glorified, sinners to be saved, and the church to be the beautiful sanctifying instrument that Jesus believed it could and would be. And so then, in conclusion to this section, let us to heed these demands, which Paul does place upon Christians for Christ's sake. As we move into the last two verses, just 7 and 8, um, things are gonna get a little technical, okay? And as much as I wanted to try and avoid it, I just don't think I can. So uh, stand, literally stand up for a second, stretch a little bit, get some blood to your cerebral cortex. Okay, we don't normally like greet around here because I I, to me it kind of feels a little contrived, but here's a chance. Shake somebody's hand and just, I don't know, do a little bit of moving so that you get some blood flowing. Okay, okay, don't get too comfortable with one another. <laughs> you can sit back down. Doug, Doug really likes that. That's like his favorite part. Um, let's be honest. Listening well is hard work. And sometimes I, I go long and it gets harder. Okay, so let's make sure your brains are ready for this. Okay, let me read verses six through eight. Paul says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were infants among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Okay, did you notice a slight difference in what I read versus the, whatever you were hopefully following along with in your own Bible? Um, I I use the ESV translation and actually what I read is not the ESV translation, okay? Uh, The reason is because this is difficult. I don't like the way the ESV does the translation work here, okay? Um, But explaining why I've reached that conclusion and, and, and continuing to give you absolute faith in the Bible that you're reading is is kind of a challenging process. So let me try and work through this. If you're reading the ESV, which is the version that I tend to use uh, when I preach, hopefully you have a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. And it says something like, some manuscripts, infant instead of gentle, okay? I want you to understand, I think infant is the better translation, which is why I went with that, instead of the word gentle. Gentle. Just as an aside, when your Bible gives you a footnote, look at it, please, because it, it, it's important. Like, they're interrupting the text of God's Word to point you to something. So, it's worth at least taking a little detour to see what's there. Now, the reason these verses are difficult to discuss in a message like this uh, is because I simply don't have time to explain to you Uh, all of the intricacies of manuscript transmission and uh, textual criticism that lays underneath your English Bible translation, okay? There's just not time for that. Suffice it to say, there is a debate about which word really is the best word to use here. Is it gentle, like the ESV says, or is it infant, like the footnote? And if you are reading the NIV, then you have infant in the text, which is cool, okay? Okay. Those who say that the best word here is gentle claim this makes sense because Paul's about to say, I came like a nursing mother, right? We would expect a nursing mother to be very gentle, and that's true. It just flows. It makes sense. And they would say that if you put infant in there, there's kind of this weird disconnect. He goes from one illustration to the next with with kind of a discontinuity there. Uh. On the other hand, those who claim that the best word is infant point to the fact that the earliest manuscripts that we have use the word infant. Okay? Now, the difference between the word gentle and infant in Greek is only one letter tacked on to the front. Okay? It's like the difference between pool and spool. And, and in many ways, if I said, I, un, I undid the pool... You might go, hmm, that's kind of weird. Is that really what he meant? Or maybe he meant he undid the spool, right? Okay, let me press on. Uh, If you're really interested in the technical aspects of this, I'm going to sit at a table. We'll pull out a table. Let's do it over here after the service. Come sit with me for a few minutes, and I'll try and explain in more detail and answer your questions, okay? But what I want you to really understand here, in spite of the footnote. In spite of what I just told you about Greek and the old manuscripts, consider this for a second. The truly miraculous preservation of the Bible that you have in your hands. Even if there are some footnotes from time to time that require a little extra uh, exploration. We are debating one letter of the Greek word that has almost no implications really for how we read what Paul writes here. See, the Bible's been transmitted to us through thousands of years of history, copied and recopied tens of thousands of times with the original documents that the actual authors wrote lost to history. They're gone. We don't have them. And after all of that process, all of that, What we currently have today, what you hold in your hands, the Bible that you hopefully build your life on and depend upon to know God, is so precise to the original documents that the most that we have to fight about is one letter tacked on to the beginning of a word that makes almost, well, that makes very little difference. How good is our God? That against all odds, he gave to us the Bible and he made sure through thousands of years of human history, the rise and fall of kings and empires, we have his word preserved for us to this exactness. Isn't that incredible? But here's where I want to go into the word infant instead of gentle for just a second, okay? Because I think Paul intentionally uses the word infant, as a series of words that we're going to see. Here in verse 7, he claims that he was innocent like an infant. And we know how innocent little babies are. Man, Rachel and Eli, I hate to put you on the spot, but like every time I hang out with Eli, I I just can't get over how cute his daughter Kennedy is and just how innocent she is, right? But here in verse 7, Paul claims he was innocent like an infant, and then later he says in the same verse... That he was loving like a nursing mother. And if you skip down to verse 11, look at what he says there that he was like a father, teaching and encouraging. And so Paul very much sees the organism of the church like the organism of the family. And Paul claims in verse 7, connecting back to the previous verses that he has always been a minister of the gospel, innocent of any wrongdoing or any questionable motives, like an infant. As we progress further into verse 7 and then into verse 8, he claims to love these people with a kind of affection then that a mother has for her nursing infant. Wow. In fact, in some of the most flowery and lovey-dovey language in all of Scripture, Paul lays out four phrases to speak about how much he cares for these people. He says he was like a nursing mother, that he remains affectionately desirous for them, that he shared not only the gospel, but his own self, and that these people became very dear to him. One commentator uh, mentions about these verses this, certainly no other passage in the whole of the Pauline corpus employs such deeply effective language in describing Paul's relation with his converts. Paul loved these people deeply. I couldn't help but think that because of Valentine's Day this week, that verses seven and eight are kind of like a like like the flowery language that you would see on a Valentine's, like a Hallmark card at the grocery store, right? It is difficult for us to understand how deeply Paul cares for these people because we're so far removed from them. But let me try and draw it out for you a little bit more, okay? The phrase affectionately desirous in Greek is actually one word. That same word has been found on the tomb of a child written there by the parents who lost that child. That's the kind of affection that it entails, like a mom and a dad for their infant child who they lost. Furthermore, when Paul says that he shared his own self, the Greek word here is suke, which is where we get psyche, and it means soul. Think about that. Paul's not claiming that he shared his home or his dinner, his food, his money, his meals, or his time. Paul's saying that he he allowed his very soul to become bound up with these people because of their common love for Jesus and their response to the gospel message that he brought them. Consider the weight of that reality. Who do you share your soul with? I know that earlier I attempted to tell you that this is how Leanne and I feel about you all. It is. It's how we feel about this church. We love you deeply. We remain affectionately desirous of you. At home, we, we probably talk about you in a good way as much as we talk about our children. We're eager to share the gospel and our lives and our very souls with you as we continue in this journey towards the heart of Christ. And Lord willing, in the years ahead, that will become only increasingly true. But I have to ask you this, okay? Time to consider yourself. Is this the same love and affection that you share for one another? The other people in this room who are here this morning? Seriously. Despite our racial differences, despite our different education levels, despite our different income levels or our hobbies, despite our minor theological differences in light of Christ, despite despite our different political views, our various values, or whatever other things might separate us or distinguish us from one another, because of our common love for Jesus, and our common commitment to the gospel, can we say truly in our hearts that we are deeply affectionate for one another? Remember, Jesus made it very clear. The first and greatest commandment, love God. The gospel in us and the Holy Spirit through us accomplishes that. But don't forget the second greatest commandment, which is to love others, love your neighbor, the Christian faith and our participation in the church means that we are a people that are radically defined by a deep and true love, not only for Jesus, but also for one another, our brothers and sisters in the faith. To, let, me, let me go so far as to say, to claim that you love Jesus and not love His children is just bogus. It is impossible. This is our family here. These are the people with whom we will stand shoulder to shoulder in eternity, worshiping the God who redeemed us. And so if you don't feel this kind of affection, what prevents you? What is it that's getting in the way? What keeps you from that? If it's sin, then I would encourage you to repent. If it's pride, then I ask you to humble yourself. If it's individualism, then I implore you to abandon your cultural idol. If it's unease with emotion, right, I don't do that lovey-dovey stuff. Well, remember how deeply affectionate Christ is for you, how emotional God's love for you is. If it's fear, maybe of being hurt or wounded, then I challenge you to take a risk. Whatever hinders you from echoing in your own heart the love that Paul has for his brothers and sisters in the faith, it is time to put that barrier to death and unite your heart and soul with the people of God through Christ. Look no longer to your own interests, but also the interests of others, potentially even over and above and beyond your own interests. Paul says in Philippians that we do just that by looking to Christ, by having the mind of Christ, the one who loves us. See, I honestly believe that if this is an area where you want to grow, this kind of love and affection for the other people that belong to Jesus, then it truly is as simple as looking to Christ. Because Paul himself has this affectionate desire for his friends in Thessalonica because he finds in Jesus the truth that God himself has this kind of affection for us. This kind of affection for Paul. This kind of affection for me, for you. So do you see what I'm saying? This is the gospel and I'll end with this. You can love the people of God in this kind of selfless capacity, with this kind of divine intensity, engaging in this level of commitment because this is how Jesus has loved you. Do you grasp that truth? Paul was not the first one to love people in this way. Jesus did it long before Paul. Christ came to His people like a nursing mother, tenderly caring for His children. Christ, even now, remains affectionately desirous of you, so much so that He will not let you go. Jesus has brought to us not only the Gospel, but the very Spirit of God, dare I say, the very soul of God to be shared with you. That's the Holy Spirit. In life, or in His life and death and resurrection, we find that for some mysterious reason, through Jesus Christ, we have become very dear to God Himself. Oh, what love the Father has given to us that through His Son, Jesus Christ, we might be called children of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this reality that the affection that Paul speaks about in these verses is only a dim reflection of your affection for your people. Lord, I pray that we would be people who who know that, who understand that, not just cognitively in our heads, but deeply in our hearts, in the very core of who we are so that it shapes us, transforms us, changes us to be people who also have deep affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you do this work in us, in our church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.